Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's conversation, we'll look back at some of the big issues and questions from the past year and look ahead to the ones that may animate 2024. David, thanks as always for joining us. And thank you for the year of conversations. Uh, you forced me to think through some <laughs> challenging things, um, and I, I have so been delighted by the interaction with the Hub audience. And so I'm, I'm thank you. I look forward to um, continuing this conversation in the year ahead. Uh, that's kind of you to say, David. Uh, we, we covered a lot of uh, big issues this year, and, and perhaps none bigger than Hamas terrorist attacks against Israel in October, the subsequent military campaign, and, and arguably, in a lot of ways, as importantly, the, the reaction around the world. What has surprised and disappointed you over the past few months? And how defining do you think these developments will be for the Middle East and our own societies. Let me put it this way. The disappointing things have not been surprises, and the surprises have not been disappointing. So I think people who are a little younger than me, and you're one of them, have a vision that there was some period of bipartisan consensus in support of Israel and against uh, terrorist attacks on Israel. And what, it, what we're seeing now on social media that is so visible is some kind of change. It's a change in behavior, and it's a change in visibility. But I, I can tell there was never a time when it, Israel could count on the support of the rest of the Western world. Let me put it this way. If there had been such a time, there wouldn't have been in Israel. Israel is a, is a response to the problem that, that Jews cannot count on, unfortunately, their neighbors consistently not to attack them and not to support the people who do attack them. So what we are hearing and seeing is different because of social media, but it's not different in kind from the kinds of reactions we had in 1982 when Israel had his, went into Lebanon in pursuit of the PLO. It's not different, by the way, from 1973 or even 1967, or even before that. I saw on YouTube a clip from before the Six-Day War, back in the 1950s, that Mike Wallace, who was then a very important American television interviewer, interviewed Hugh Arnold Toynbee, who was then a much admired yes, of course. historian. He's a crackpot, but he was at the time a huge deal. And Toynbee was explaining how in the 1950s, that Israel's fascist behavior had alienated the goodwill it had won from the Holocaust. Mm. So that's that's it's always been the same. What has changed that, that what has changed is social media clout chasing. And one of the things that is a kind of bitter irony for people on the other side of this debate from me is if they want to, if you want to be an effective advocate for the Palestinian cause, do not do the things that get you social media clout. Do not do vandalism. Do not stage confrontations. Do not wrap a bandana under your face so you look like a highwayman or a thug or a terrorist yourself and then try to frighten children visiting Santa. 
Um, those are counterproductive actions, but they're all driven by the quest for social media clout. And so, so that is the surprise to me has been, in fact, we are now heading toward the third, the third month since October 7th. And the solidarity, not only of the United States government, but of the European Union governments and the government of the United Kingdom has been undiminished. And mm -hmm. I, that is to me a surprise. I did not think that Israel would have as much time as, as it has been allowed. And I'm very grateful for that. The government of Canada has unfortunately played a more ambivalent role. Not a, yet a negative role, but a decreasingly positive role. And Canada has made some symbolic steps that were very unfortunate. I, I hope this thank you video Christmas greeting from Hamas to the government <laughs> of Canada is a warning to people. You know, if, if bin Laden is sending you, thank you so much for your kind words, notes, you need to rethink what you're saying because you shouldn't be getting those notes. Yeah, that's a Christmas card nobody wants to receive or most people ought not to receive in their, their, their mailbox. Your answer, David, possibly trumps my next question, but I have to put it to you because I, I do think it reflects the feelings and sentiments of a lot of people in the hub community. And, and that is the notion that our democratic pluralism has been put to a test this year. And, yeah. and many are feeling like it hasn't proven as strong as we thought. You, you mentioned protests, intimidation, violence, even harassment in, in shopping centers in, in recent days. What, if anything, should come out of this experience? Does it require greater scrutiny at what's happening at Canada's still mostly publicly funded universities? Do we need to ask ourselves tougher questions about immigration integration and settlement? And in light of the foreign interference stories from earlier in the year, do we even need to rethink how we do politics itself? Well, I, I would say, look, I, I have been an advocate that Canada needs to rethink immigration because Canada's immigration policies and Canada's housing policies are so misaligned that you have to choose one. I mean, we are either going to continue the immigration as we're having it, in which case you need to pave the green belt. You need, you just need to say, we are, you need to get rid of zoning. We are building everywhere. We're going to make every Canadian city look like Hong Kong uh, because Otherwise, there won't be homes for people, and not just immigrants, but they're in the same competing in the same housing market as as the native-born and the children of the native-born. And the, so, uh, build, so if you're going to have this many immigrants, build, 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 build everywhere, and that means zoning goes. That means environmental rules go. Or you bring your immigration policies in line with their housing policies. If you're not going to build so much, then you can't take so many people. It's not complicated. So that's the reason to rethink the immigration policies. For me, I think the most important lesson is that in certain progressive quarters, the concept of what is speech has gotten very muddied and that they are both two the classic speech, speech classic with the little, you know, the, 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 with the formula, <laughs> with the, with the, the, the cane sugar. So speech classic has been disfavored because we're told that speech classic is violent. Speech classic can hurt people. Meanwhile, new speech, meaning intimidation, a meaning uh, vandalism, that, that, that there are speech, that there's a demand to give speech like protection. And we had, we, there was a huge, so people say, I want to be able to throw red paint. Uh, on on the door of a store, and I want to plaster it with hostile placards, and commit the acts of vandalism, or assemble a mob in front of a business and frighten people try, as they try to come in. And we regard that as expressive activity and therefore speech protected. But meanwhile, if if you say it didn't that the native mass grave story didn't happen the way it was reported, that should be criminalized. Because that's that's speech speech classic. No new speech. Yes. So we need to get I think a. a, a clear idea. We need to reinforce that there is a line where speech is speech, even if you don't like it, it's protected. 
If anybody wants to publish an op-ed in the Globe and Mail saying Israel is committing genocide, if they want to form in a public place and have signs saying Israel is committing genocide, that's, that's speech. That's legal. If you want to harass, intimidate, commit some acts of symbolic violence tending toward actual violence, if you want to threaten people's lives in front of a police officer, that is not speech and that is not protected. And I, I don't know if Canada has on the books that the laws that many Southern states do, the anti-masking laws originally adopted in the wake of the Ku Klux Klan, said you cannot go to a protest wearing a mask. Uh, if you don't have those rules, those should be on the books. And if you do have them, they should be enforced. Because why do people mask at a protest? Because they're going to break the law. And they know they're about to break the law. So the best way to enforce the law is to say, sorry, that you, you, have, we, we, you get ticketed. It's not a crime to wear a mask, but you, you, you pay $500. And then when you take the mask off, then we can see who you are if you throw a brick through a window, because that is not speech. So that is my, my top recommendation. And this should apply everywhere. It should apply on university campuses too. And university campuses, just because they're more full of idle people, <laughs> there's, there's, greater, there's greater propensity for mischief there. Um, and idle people who have often un, un undeserved ideas of their own intellectual superiority to their neighbors. Um, there's a lot of malicious activity that takes place there, but the rules need to be the same, which is speech is speech. Menacing is not speech. Speech is protected. Menacing is not. If we can get that idea reaffirmed out of this sad period, that would be a, a game. You've been a major champion of Western support for Ukraine, including in a, a must-read article for The Atlantic in the past couple of weeks. Uh, Canada has been mostly immune to the conservative apprehension or, or even opposition to financial and military support. Yet I note that not only has the Conservative Party of Canada's support been questioned a bit in recent weeks, but this week, the Toronto Sun, a major conservative daily newspaper here, had a cartoon that depicted President Zelensky pickpocketing Joe Biden. As someone who spent a lot of time in conservative foreign policy circles, what do you think explains the degree of conservative aversion to supporting Ukraine? Yeah, I have to say this, I am more surprised and more horrified by this. The decline of support for Ukraine on the political right has, because you would think this would mobilize everything that pulled a person into the political right in the first place. The belief that aggression has to be met with defense, not with words. That there is a community of democratic nations that are qualitatively different from non-democratic nations. That the, the West, that there is, that the Western democracy, and I don't like the geographic term for the West because, of course, Japan is a bulwark of the West. And depending on, at least from our point of view, uh, if you start on our hemisphere, <laughs> they, they look like they're in the other hemisphere. But they're, you know, Taiwan and South Korea and Australia and New Zealand, they're not geographic West. And yet, you know, they're, so that's not the right term. We're going to need, need another one, made the democratic world. But we, we are all in this together. Those are the ideas that pulled me into conservative politics in the first place back in the late 1970s. I think what, among the things that is happening, and this is, I think, affecting the debate in Canada, there is this sub-media, I call it the under-news, um, that you see in various kinds of places that are not readily visible. They're on um, people who, uh, whose shows have been canceled from YouTube, who are on Rumble or dis some others, or on a Discord server. Um, all of these um, so chat boards and so on. And there is gathering there a series of highly crazy, paranoid ideas about Ukraine that are rooted in Russian propaganda and anti-Semitism and conspiracy theory and alienation from the mainstream currents of society. And this is tugging a lot of people in the conservative world. You see this very much in the United States where you can chart 
the, there have been a, there were republic important votes in the House of Representatives on aid to Ukraine in March of 2022, May of 2022, September of 2022, and then a series in 23, culminating in the in the stall on Ukraine aid now. And you can just see we're now at a point where a slight majority of the Republican House caucus is on the anti-Ukraine side. Now, it's still three quarters of the House of Representatives is pro-Ukraine and almost all of the Senate. But it's, the anti-Ukraine sentiment is growing and it's driven by loyalty to far right causes. It's driven by loyalty to Trump. It's driven ultimately by fascination with Russia and Putin. And it's really alarming. And Canada is not immune. There have been votes in the Canadian House of Commons, symbolic only. But, you know, the thing about, about a symbolic vote, if, you're, if it's a symbolic vote and you know it's meaningless, why don't you vote for the right way? Sometimes there are tough votes. You know, and, and even it's in a symbolic vote, there's some little, there's a sentence you don't love. But yeah, no, there's, the, the Canadian Conservative Party is making concessions to people who are influenced by this flow of under news. And it's very alarming. Uh, it's very alarming. And next year is going to be tough. It's going to be a huge fight. Ukraine is running low on supplies. The, there was supposed to be a big aid package in December. It's stalled until January. We have to hope to God it prevails in January. But Ukraine could be betrayed by the people it looked to be trusted. And uh, I would, I think anyone who's part of that betrayal will live forever in shame. Yeah, here, here. Let's turn to the Conservative Party of Canada more directly, which ends the year in a strong position. It leads national polling by a considerable majority. And if an election were held today, it would be poised to win one of the largest parliamentary majorities since the 1980s. What have the Conservatives done right in your mind, and what should they be focused on as we enter 2024? When we, were, we began talking about this topic in 2022, one of the themes I kept stressing is oppositions do not win elections, government lose, lose them, at least in Westminster countries. And the actions of the opposition are important mostly in preserving your, uh, the feed, freedom of the future government to act and in getting ready and in building, you know, making sure you have a good team and recruiting the right kinds of MPs. So I would say very little of what has happened to the Conservative Party represents anything that the Conservatives have done. Uh, and almost all of it rep is driven by what was the most important Canadian fact of the year, which is that Canada has emerged from the pandemic with a, an ever-widening gap between the performance of the Canadian economy and the performance of the American economy. And Canadians can see it. Americans don't see it. <laughs> but because they're comparing, they're comparing, the, they, they're looking at the gap between here's perfection and here's the United States. And so the United States is not quite even with perfection. But Canada says, I don't know, the American line looks up to us. And, and so they're very dissatisfied with the government of the day, partly for things, partly that are the government's fault and for other things that reflect deeper structures in Canadian Life, the, fail, the failure to have significant improvements in the free trade regimen over the past quarter century. You know, free trade is not something you do it's, you do once and then forget. You know that it has to constantly. You have to constantly be working because there are so many pressures to keep to close markets. You have to constantly work to keep markets open. And if you're the smaller of the two trading partners, it's especially urgent to you to keep. I, I think the way to think about this metaphor is it's like somebody who's got. A susceptibility to some kind of arterial disease. Um, you need to constantly be working to keep those arteries flowing or else they will tend to clog. And then if they clog, the results are calamitous. But some of the things, the decisions are the government's. Um, Canada has chosen to increase spending dramatically, but not in ways that enhance productivity. Unlike some of the investments that the Biden administration has been making, which are pro productivity, Canadian investments, Canadian spending has all been consumption. And so 
Canada is not building the healthier economy of the future. And then there's the chronic problem of the housing shortage, which just means Canadians are commuting longer. Uh, if you're commuting, you're probably not doing anything product else productive. And Canadians are overspending on their houses and therefore spending less on other things that they also need, many of them productive investments. And above all, they're spending less on having children, which is a real sacrifice of the future for the present. So some of those are the government's fault. But that's the story. That, and that, that I think the government is hoping the interest rate cuts that are probably coming in 2024 in the United States and that can then follow in Canada, that those will improve its positions. I think that's probably a fair bet. And I think the government is also hoping, because there is a record here, that the present leadership of the Conservative Party does not believe, my theory, that governments lose. They believe that oppositions can win. And so they keep doing things. And many of the things they do are ill-advised. And so the strategy for the government is hold on to the, as long as you can, hope for interest rates cuts, hope that the American economy really revs up in 2024 and takes the Canadian economy with it, and then wait for the opposition party to make mistakes as it has a proven record of doing. The Hub has the perfect holiday gift for the thinking person in your life. That's right. You can give the gift of The Hub. Hub gifties get all kinds of great benefits, including a one-size-fits-all luxury twill hub baseball cap to sport their hubbiness this holiday. You get access for your giftee to Hub Form, our daily email newsletter and discussion group, complimentary access for the giftee to all our live events, and special offers on events, books, and Hub merchandise. Grab your Hub gift subscription right now at our website, www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the Join button, scroll to the bottom of our membership page, follow the instructions, and we'll give you 20% off right now on this gift offer. Simply input the promo code SUBSCRIBE20 at checkout. Give the gift of the Hub this holiday season. A conversation about Canadian conservatism is perhaps a good or bad segue into what's happening in Republican politics. This week, a Colorado court ruled that Donald Trump is disqualified from being on the ballot in the state due to his role in the January 6th riots on Capitol Hill. I would just say in parentheses, for listeners and viewers interested in the subject, they ought to read uh, David's must-read article on the subject. But it raises broader questions about Trump's extraordinary staying power with Republican voters. In yeah. hindsight, David... Is there in your mind a parallel universe where someone could have dislodged him as a Republican frontrunner this year? And what would have that taken compared to what Ron DeSantis and others have done in the current yeah. presidential cycle? I don't think there is such a parallel universe. The parallel universe is if the Electoral College had taken a slightly different turn in 2016 and Donald Trump had lost that presidential election. Republicans would have looked at it and said that would, nominating Trump was obviously stupid. Um, you know, he, he, in 2016, he got le less of the vote than Mitt Romney had gotten in 2012. That, that, that you would have said, well, look at where Romney was at 47 plus percent of the popular vote. Look where Trump was, barely above 46. We gave away a whole point of public of, of the vote because this guy was such a jerk and an obnoxious creep. And we need to get back on the Romney line. Uh, at least Romney got 47% and build on Romney and reject Trump. And then Republicans would have had a great 2018 instead of the wipeout they had. They had, remember they had majorities in both House and Senate in 2016. They would have expanded those majorities in 2018. And then some reasonable, normal person, probably Nikki Haley, 
because there would have been no Ron DeSantis without Trump. And he came because Ron DeSantis won in 2018 as governor of Florida because of the mass. He was not such an attractive candidate. He won an, a squeaker of a race because he had a lot of support from Trump, who was then very popular with Florida Republicans. So with no Trump, no DeSantis, Nikki Haley, you know, a woman with a, a partly immigrant, an immigrant background, she would be very appealing. And they, the Republicans would have had a crusher of a year in 2020, an, um, an echo of their massive win in 1920. And we'd be, you know, the, uh, we'd be at a conservative period in the 2020s that would be much more stable and productive. And uh, the whole world would have been different. I don't, I think what has happened is tr Trump has energized something that was there in the United States and is there in all the developed countries, which is the trend away from conservatism to reactionary authoritarianism. And you see it in almost every European country where Christian democratic parties or what conservative parties are fading and populist parties, for lack of a better term, neo-fascist parties often have, have come to the fore. And sometimes countries get lucky, as Italy has done, where the person in charge of this new party, the right, turned out to be a reasonably responsible actor. And then, you know, then you can, can actually continue your strong democratic traditions. Sometimes they get unlucky as Germany, where the people in the party are really nasty um, pieces of work and the, and the old Christian democratic structures get devoured. Um, and that's the story of the United States. Canada is not immune to any of these trends. I remember just after Trump was elected, uh, I was, I did a session with graduate students at the university of British Columbia. And actually this may have been just as Trump was. And so I, I, I reviewed the case histories of Britain, Germany, France, the United States, and said it, as of the middle 2010s, Canada was immune. Had this had not happened, why not? Not. These are political science. What, what, and the answer they all gave was some var variation of because we're so awesome. <laughs> and I thought, I'm, you know, it's not my position here to tell a room full of PhD candidates that you're wrong, but I don't <laughs> think you're right because I think Canadians belong to the same human race as everybody else and have the same temptations and tendencies. Uh, so Canada, but Canada was a laggard. I don't think that's continuing. And I think uh, we saw in the reactions to um, the pandemic and we're seeing now in some of the re changes in Ukraine that this, these ideas are gaining ground in Canada and Canadians need to be wary of them. And Canadian political leadership needs not to indulge these attitudes, but to really fight them. And one other lesson from Donald Trump, and this is maybe for, this is the lesson that for all conservative parties everywhere else, it is always preferable to lose an election than to lose control of your identity. And if you have a significant authoritarian force within your, that has grown up within your party, do not help them in the name of party unity. Say, you know what? We're going to take the L this time. And we're going to put, we're going to pin the L on these people. And, and then we will rebuild from there. Better to take the L once. That's the point of a democratic, in a democratic system, it's never so terrible to lose an election. It shouldn't ever be so terrible. We're going to take, unless there's a faction in your party that says, we're going to make this election the last election. And if you have such people, then then it is very serious to lose. So if you have such people and they're growing, they're a parasite within your own political organization, taking it over, take the loss, do not cooperate, rebuild. Final question, David. For the past 12 months, you've not only helped us think through a lot of the big issues and questions, but you've also helped us to anticipate them. What are some of the sleeper issues that you're looking to towards 2024 do you think our listeners and viewers ought to pay attention to. One is we, well, here's the thing that didn't happen. We've had tremendous success managing the global energy problem through the Ukraine war and now through a war that we have a war both in the world's largest 
food producing region and the world's largest fuel producing region, or what used to be. Now the United States is the world's largest fuel producing region. And and the shocks have been very successfully managed. So let's pat ourselves on the back collectively. And people in Europe have especially have made real sacrifices on the energy front. And we're now halfway through winter. And again, the, the despite terrorism by Iran-backed uh, groups in Yemen in, in the shipping lanes of the Red Sea, um, the liquid, liquid natural gas situation is a little more tense than it was two weeks ago, but it's not unbearable. So a, a sleeper issue for tw- to 2024, at first, is to something I would have said in 23 is to say, you know what? This was successfully managed. And one of the great injustices of politics is the bad. No one gets credit for the bad things that could have happened but didn't. So here's yes. a bad thing that could have happened that didn't. We are probably going to have a hot summer in 2024. Again, we need to be thinking about the climate problem. Not in hysterical, apocalyptic Greta Thunberg terms, but in real-world policy terms. We need to accelerate the transition to non-fossil fuel sources of energy, and it's doable. It's really doable. And the costs we will pay in advance are fractions of the costs we will pay if we have to mitigate later. So, so do it now. But don't look at it as like things like carbon tax. Don't look at them as revenue measures. Look at them as change-forcing measures, but using markets to change the forces. Government does not know the right way to make this transition. The market collectively can figure it out. So incentivize the market to say, where does it make sense? And, and um, non-fossil fuel alternatives, are, it's more, bigger than just transitioning from coal to wind power. A lot of it is about reorganizing how cities work, so people walk instead of using transit of any kind. A lot of just thinking, rethinking how work works so people can work remotely and they don't need, they, you know, they save the journey. A, a lot of it, of it is rethinking ethics of, of consumption and style so that, that people can, you know, people can enjoy nature on foot rather than an all-terrain vehicle. So there's much to be done. That, that's a sleeper issue. Um, global security challenges are clearly worsening. And the, the great piece of luck that has not happened is China has not yet made a serious stress. As Ru- the years that Russia is making a stress on the international system in Iran and various terrorist groups and, and, and other like small actors, like there's, there's been a major war in Central Africa. There's a major crisis in the Sudan that people see that when the great powers are distracted by, by top level crises, that creates opportunities for malign actors to take advantage. And the, and will China be one of them? So that so, but we we need to reanimate security structures. Uh, the real lesson of Ukraine, especially, is you know we we need to make NATO work again. We th- we we sort of let it put it in the museum after 1989. Yes. Uh, we need to have um, pool, true equipment pooling, not interoperability, but common wep- weapons design. And that, that with there's with the fighter plane that has happened, the F-35. NATO is all flying the same plane. And that makes future situations about parts and having mechanics who know how to operate, making sure the Finnish mechanics can work on a Swedish plane. That all gets, but that should be everything. That should be everything. And we need to have NATO defense stockpiles. The ammo should be in one place. We should be thinking about this kind of collective preparedness with things that aren't military. We, we need to think about having fl- stockpiles that are for medical equipment, but that are constantly renewed. You don't take the medical equipment and bury it under a mountain and, and see and dig it out 20 years later. Uh, the Americans had that with the respirators and they pull out the 20 year old respirators and guess what? They don't work. <laughs> what you need to be doing is thinking about them as, you know, as a, an, an active inventory. So the rest, when the respirator turns three, it's sold. 
and a new respirator is bought. When the um, big boxes of plastic gloves turn 12 months old, they are sold. Um, and, to, and then new ones are bought. You manage it the way you manage the energy stockpile. And we need to do this collectively. Um, we need to we need to put the collective back in collective security because, the, you know, Russia, as menacing as it is, obviously the United States is a lot bigger. But the United States alone is not a lot bigger than China. Uh, the only way you balance China is by making sure that all of us are in this together with common structures and common resources. Another thing to look forward to in the future is we have been on a spasm of self-hatred in the Western world since Really, maybe it begins with the rise of Instagram and new, new social media in the 2010s, but especially since the pandemic and the Black Lives Matters movement. It's summed up by this crazy renaming of streets in of Dundas Square in Toronto. And we, I think, need collectively all across the Western world, and we in Canada especially, um, to rediscover where we came from and rediscover spirits of gratitude toward the people who built the country. If they hadn't built the country, you wouldn't be able to enjoy it. And there's something... So, uh, you know, I want to say to Canadians that, do you like the society in which you live? Um, are you grateful for it? Do you feel free? Do you feel prosperous? Do you feel secure? And yes, you're comparing yourself to the American economy, which did better in 23 than the Canadian, but really it's one of the most enviable places in the world to live. You didn't do that. You just were, you were born here or you moved here. Somebody else made it. And it's pretty disgusting to say, thank you for uh, making such a wonderful place for me to live, now I am going to demolish your statue. What have you done that was so great that it entitles you to defame the people who made the world in which you live so happily? So this reanimating the spirit of gratitude, and of course they were imperfect. Are you so great? Will the future admire you so much? You know, they belong to this, again, they belong to the same human race as you do. They had their limitations and their blindnesses. But that doesn't make their accomplishments unreal, and it doesn't give, it doesn't make you any less warm-like, that having not equaled their achievements, you decide you're going to express yourself by devouring theirs. What a wonderful way to end 12 months of conversation. It reflects the trenchant analysis and insight that I know our listeners and viewers have come to expect. I want to thank you personally, David, for speaking to me, I think approaching 25 times this year. Yeah. And I look back to, I look forward rather to, to 2024. We'll resume these conversations as early as the middle of January, and, and no doubt we'll have a lot to talk about. Uh, happy holidays to you and your family, and, and happy holidays to our listeners and, and viewers. Have a wonderful Christmas, and uh, let's hope for a fortunate 2024. Peaceful, prosperous, and safe. You're here. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Brum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Gletsch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation.